Welcome to the Best of Making Sense. This is Sam Harris. In this series, we re-air some of the most popular episodes of the Making Sense podcast. These are conversations that we think you'll find just as relevant today as when they were originally released. Okay, so today I have an unusual podcast. My wife, Annika, is joining me. She's never been on the podcast before. Many of you have asked to have her on. And as luck would have it, she has a book that we were eager to talk about. Uh, The book is Conscious, A Brief Guide to the Fundamental Mystery of the Mind. And um, let me see her bio. Uh, Annika Harris is an author, editor, and consultant for science writers. She's the author of the children's book, I Wonder, and a collaborator on Susan Kaiser Greenland's Mindful Games activity cards. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, and she lives with her husband, the neuroscientist, author, and podcaster Sam Harris, and their two children. Uh, I can confirm all of those facts. The thing that's not here, though implicit in her being an editor and consultant for science writers, uh, Annika has edited all of my written work since my first book, The End of Faith. That book included, and once I discovered her talents as an editor, I recommended that she do it professionally, so she's collaborated with other scientists, neuroscientists and physicists mainly. And she wrote the children's book, I Wonder, which many of you liked. But this is the first book that she's written for grown-ups. And the focus of the book is the nature of consciousness and why it is so inscrutable. This is something that not everyone recognizes. And she does that remarkably well. I read some of the blurbs in a previous housekeeping, but Marco Iacoboni, neuroscientist, says, I've read many, many great books on consciousness in my life as a neuroscientist. Conscious tops them all, hands down. Uh, Tim Urban, the author of the Wait But Why blog, writes, One of those books that fundamentally shifts the way you think about reality. Annika Harris is a masterful explainer. Max Tegmark, physicist at uh, MIT, writes, In this gem of a book, Annika Harris tackles consciousness controversies with incisive rigor and clarity in a style that's accessible and captivating. Anyway, it's a great look at the problem of consciousness, We get into some of this over the next hour. We talk about a few other things. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the conversation. I certainly did. And now I bring you Annika Harris. Okay, I got Annika Harris in the studio. My own wife. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) You ready for this? We should really have other people here, I think. No, are you to save us from ourselves? Yeah. I already can tell I have a hostile witness here. <laughs> okay, well, you have a new book coming out for grown-ups <laughs> that we're going to talk about. Let's talk about how uh, overjoyed you are to be doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. Why are you reluctant to do this? I don't think we should start with that. Why not? I don't know, because part of it is just that it's this is a totally awkward thing to do, which is why I think it might be better if we had... Get that mic a little closer to you. Okay. And point it more toward you. There you go. Like that? Yeah. First, the reality is, I, I just realized this, our first date was filled with a conversation about this topic. I mean, That's we, true. We basically spoke about consciousness right. and free will and you know the other topics in your book. Now, it may be a bad sign that that was followed by you avoiding me for six months and not returning <laughs> my emails. So... No, but I mean, the the thing I thought about also before we did this is that the friend who set us up had said to me that 
she didn't know, of course, whether there'd be a romantic connection, but that she knew that we would be great friends because we talk about and think about all of the same things. And it's true. We've been thinking about a lot of the same things for for most of our lives. And this was the topic of, I think, mostly what we talked about that the first time we met was philosophy and consciousness. Not to give uh, a false impression, we don't spend a lot of time talking about these things now. So happily, your your book is an excuse to get into it. And your book is Conscious, A Brief Guide to the Fundamental Mystery of the Mind. You wanted a different title, I recall. I, I'm yeah. not, I, I think you lucked out in being I overruled on your title. But I what was the too. first title? Lights On. Right. Conscious, I think, is a better title. Yeah. They were uh, right. So thank you, dear publisher. <laughs> so um, what's the book about? Really? See, this is weird. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Why did you write a book on consciousness? I think we can go back to what's the book about. Say, you know, I obviously know what the book is about, but why don't you say something about what the book is about? <laughs> <laughs> Let me, you already asked the question. Let me just try to answer. Oh, my God. All right. This, <laughs> that is staying in the interview. <laughs> that is awesome. I listen, have veto power. Listen. <laughs> Yes, I do. Listen to me. Okay. I'm going to answer. Let me answer your question. You asked a question. Let me answer it. Let me answer. (laughs) This is my podcast. So you asked a question. Let me answer. Okay. (laughs) All right. So my book is about the science and philosophy of consciousness, and it focuses on why consciousness is so deeply mysterious. But one one of the things that it does that has always been interesting to me and that, of course, you and I have, have talked a lot about is breaking through false intuitions. And it's something that I find incredibly interesting to do and interesting that we often reach deeper truths, more fundamental truths, a better picture of the reality around us when we can break through intuitions that are misleading us or that are giving us false information about the world around us, even if they're, they're helpful for us at the time. I was thinking earlier about the fact that even as a child, this was an interesting exercise to me. This was something, and I actually begin the book this way. So I, I talk about just my experience of, of breaking through the intuition, basically that the earth is flat and that we're, we're on it underneath the sky rather than on a sphere in, in the way that we are. But I remember being a child and trying to think of paradoxes or make up paradoxes just to create this feeling of kind of breaking out of this this day-to-day experience that that I knew in some ways was misguiding me or keeping me apart from, from the deeper mysteries. So what are some of the intuitions that are so off around consciousness? So just to give some context, you and I both have this experience of being in dialogue with some very smart people who seem not to get, the the most charitable thing to say is they have fundamentally different intuitions about consciousness and what could be plausible to think about it, what's interesting about it, what is mysterious about it. Uh, This is true of free will, too. This is true of the nature of the self Mm -hmm. or its illusory nature. And those are the two big ones. Those are the 
big ones that I think are are misleading us in terms of being able to understand consciousness. Right. Well, so so the so free will and, and the self are really two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And then there's the hard problem of consciousness, which is more the focus of your book. Mm-hmm. Although free will and the self come up. So and it, so you and I are almost the worst people to diagnose this problem because we're really we're totally aligned on our intuitions here and we're fairly mystified by the responses we get from some people on these topics. So right. we've been in some funny circumstances too where we cannot let go of our side of the, we happen to be in the same place at an event or a dinner where we've encountered someone who has a very different intuition and neither of us can let this debate go and so we'll sit there for 2 hours <laughs> until everyone right. else is left trying to get the other person to understand what we're talking about. Yeah, we basically try to perform an exorcism on this person. Yeah. And I guess those people it's, should go nameless, but so but we'll start with the hard problem and the intuition that some people have that it either doesn't exist or it's not hard or there's no mystery around consciousness that is different from any other Mm-hmm. thing we don't yet understand mm-hmm. scientifically. How do you raise this subject? Yeah, I, I do. I understand it in a sense because, so the hard problem, I believe the, the term was coined by David Chalmers, but this is, this is obviously, this is a problem that people have encountered for much longer than David Chalmers used the term in 1995. So it's, it's a concept that has been around for a very long time, and, and he gave us this shorthand, which is great and very useful in conversation. But the, the problem is, is essentially, why is it that any configuration of non-conscious material, since we obviously know that everything in the universe is, is, is made of the same things, the, the, the ingredients are the same for everything, and, but that particles get configured in such a way that suddenly the matter itself entails an experience of being that matter. And so there's almost no explanation, or there's really no explanation we could think of that we could ever give that would make it less mysterious, because it's always non-conscious matter getting arranged in a very specific way so that it suddenly lights up from the inside. And so it seems that no matter how much we know about the brain, there's nothing that will, that will ever make this less mysterious. And so that so Chalmers was contrasting this problem, this mystery, to the quote unquote easier problems, which are more about how the brain processes, which parts of the brain are responsible for which functions, and the more complex understanding that we now have, since we have a science of the brain, of which experiences and which behaviors are correlated with which brain states. Right. So the, an easy problem of consciousness would be something like why is vision the way it is? Why is there a one-to-one mapping, say, of the visual field onto the visual cortex? Mm-hmm. But the hard problem is, why is it like something to see? Right. Why, why is could, there an experience there at all? Yeah. As you said, it, it seems like you, know, you have complex systems doing complex things. At no point should it be necessary, or it's certainly not obvious why it would be necessary, that it be like something from the inside. Right to be that system, because we know so much of this can happen unconsciously, even in our own case, or it certainly seems, well, we'll get to that, actually. We may not know that as much as we think we do. But so now I've just used this phrase a few times, like something, mm-hmm. to be a system. And that comes from Thomas Nagel's essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat?, where he defined consciousness in these terms. If, if it is like something to be a bat, 
that's what we mean by consciousness in the case of a bat, whether we can ever understand what it's like to be a bat or not. Now, this phrase trips off our tongues without any problem, and yet I notice that it confuses many people. Again, people who have the opposite intuition about consciousness. They either think, well, it's like something to be anything. It's like something to be that couch you're sitting on, Mm -hmm. right? Well, but it's part it's partly a linguistic issue that it doesn't actually mean it, anything. It's 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 not as accurate as we'd like it to be. I actually like the word experience better, even though that can be misunderstood too, but it, it confuses people on two levels. One, there are people who actually don't see consciousness and experience as being something unique, I guess is the right word. But there's there's an there are another group of people who actually get the hard problem, but they still have a hard time getting their minds around this language. It's like something. Is it like something? And I actually, I noticed that with with most of those people, if you just have a, a little back and forth, they get it. And you, you've written about this too, just distinguishing between collections of matter or systems that you think are having, having an experience and those that aren't. And that that difference, that basic difference is what we mean by consciousness, what we're talking about, what is mysterious. So if you just ask the person, you know, is there something that it's like to be you right now? Are you having an experience? And of course, they they don't even have to think about it. They just reflexively answer yes. And then you say, is it like something to be your shoelace? Or is your chair having an experience right now? Their intuition is immediately no. And so it doesn't even matter what the truth is, just being able to distinguish between like, okay, yes, there, there's, I have an immediate response to that. And so therefore, I, I understand what you're talking about. So I, I guess the confusion that I notice is that people, when you say this phrase, what is it like to be a bat? They take the external view of that. What is it like from the outside to be that thing? Not what oh. it's like from the inside. But and then I think experience does the trick there. You yeah. can say- you What know, a kind of experience does yes. that have? Yeah. Okay, so why is it not straightforward to judge the consciousness of a system or a thing from the outside? What is the evidence that consciousness exists? Yeah, so this is, so listeners know, I I begin my discussion and my, basically the book takes the reader through my own thought processes over the last 15 years or so and what I've arrived at and why I've become open to some of the stranger theories that are out there that postulate that consciousness could be a more fundamental feature of the universe. And so I begin this investigation of breaking through our intuitions and getting as close in my in my own thoughts as I have been able to at what are our intuitions and could they be wrong. And so I think our the most primary intuitions we have about consciousness live in these two questions that I like to keep asking myself. And the first one is the one you just you know, the one you just named. Is there any behavior on the outside or anything we can witness on the outside of a system that can tell us conclusively that consciousness is present in that system? And my first answer is is always yes. And that that's something that I then question throughout the book. But I think it's interesting because we we feel very strongly that the answer is yes. If I see that my daughter has fallen down and is crying and you ask me is is all this behavior you're seeing right now evidence that she's conscious i would say absolutely this this is just, just to be clear see. this is not the normal way i parent with you, but <laughs> i'm capable of a lot but not quite that 
so you know or or anything in the in the book i use the example of someone witnessing a car accident i think and you know being appropriately concerned and calling 911 all, all there t- there's just endless amount of behaviors that we witness that we think yes that that is absolute evidence that that person is conscious of I mean, we can do it with animals as well and i think it's interesting to question that to question whether there is something that by definition gives us evidence that there is is consciousness there. Well, so as, so obviously there are counterexamples. We all meet people in dreams. Presumably they're not conscious or don't even exist, and they seem to be conscious. We will almost certainly build robots at a certain point which pass the Turing test. Mm-hmm. And if we don't understand the material basis of consciousness at the time we produce those robots, we won't know whether or not they're conscious, and yet they they may seem to be conscious. Right. And then conversely, there are people who we know, due to neurological injury, are still conscious, but they can give no sign of that. And, right. and one example I think you talk about in the book is locked-in syndrome. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that I, I actually start there with, with all of the cases we can give where we don't see that behavior that we would normally give. And there is a a full, very complex, you know, as complex as, as our own experiences right now that are present in people who are completely paralyzed. And we could never see that evidence from the outside. I think that's an interesting starting place for whether we can ever pinpoint certain behaviors that, that we can say conclusively are evidence of consciousness. And then the second question is, essentially, is consciousness doing anything? Is it serving a function? And our reflexive answer with that, again, is yes. And my, my intuition goes that way, too. But I think the, these are the kind of the simplest, deepest intuitions we have. And I wanted to start there in terms of challenging our intuitions and, and, and trying to break through some of them. So an example of, of the second question, even though it's very similar to the first, but it's getting at it from a slightly different angle would be, you know, just deciding to to write a book or even the the whole writing process, it feels very strongly that consciousness is driving all of that. It feels like every time I, I make a decision or plan almost anything, consciousness is the thing that's driving it. It's it is it clearly has a role in my behavior and it seems to have a role at the very beginning. And the science actually, you know, as you know and have talked about and written about is is the opposite. And so that's that's an intuition that we can start to chip away at pretty quickly. And I think you you start to go down very interesting paths of contemplation when when you begin with these two questions that challenge our intuitions. Yeah, so it's not clear what consciousness is doing. And this is the concern here in philosophy has been that consciousness is a so-called epiphenomenon, mm-hmm. which is to say, it's it's something that is stands outside the stream of phenomenon that are causal. And if consciousness is doing anything, it has to be doing it at the level of, in our case, the brain's causal pattern, you know, the neurophysiology. So mm-hmm. it's the most w- well-subscribed view at this point is that consciousness, whatever it is, at the level of experience, it is you know the fact that the lights are on, the fact that it's like something to be you in this moment. That's how it seems from the first person side, but there's some third person level of description, which is its cash value at the level of causality. So if there's mm-hmm. certain, if, mm-hmm. if, if some things can only be done consciously, 
that's because whatever consciousness is at the level of neurophysiology, in our case, that has to be part it's of the, the, the causal stream, right? Yeah. But it's a little more mysterious than that in that, and you just alluded to this, which is that anything we're conscious of, I mean, take your writing process, the decision to write, the decision to sit down precisely at that moment to write, the decision about where to start relative to what you had written previously, the word choice for the, to start the next sentence, anything you can point to in that process, no matter how deliberative it seems, is preceded by events in your brain of which you're not conscious, of which, right, which, exactly. which there's no conscious correlate. And the question is, why does any of that, that seemingly could all happen on its own, yeah. right? And, and so what is consciousness adding to right. that process? Well, and the zombie thought experiment has always been instrumental in this. But I actually think at this point, because AI is so in our minds because of pop culture and, and films, I think it's easy for us to imagine AI doing a lot of the things that we are capable of without consciousness. Like writing a book. Like writing a book. But even something like vision it seems very natural to us that we have an experience of seeing things and we we understand that there are processes in the brain and light is bouncing off the objects in the room and hitting our retina and our brain and we're processing this. But we can easily see that a computer, a camera, or very advanced AI could be doing all of the processing, the visual processing that we're doing without having an experience like the one we're having. There, there's a very specific feeling content of consciousness to be seeing the color blue. And that's not necessarily, or it doesn't seem to us to be necessary for the processing to take place. So the, the idea that consciousness might not be doing anything is problematic or perceived to be problematic from an evolutionary point of view, because right. people wonder, well, then why would it have evolved? Yeah. Right? Surely it must be doing something because it, it must be expensive metabolically on some level although perhaps not all that expensive. And why would this thing have emerged? Now, this, yeah. again, not, not everything that's emerged has a, an evolutionary rationale. There are things that just have come along for free that aren't really selected for. But, but our intuitions are so aligned with that theory also. It really feels like, you know, the love and my desire to protect my child is the thing that will give me that extra power, that extra strength, that extra will. The experiential component do, of that. To, yeah. To do, yeah. The fact that it's like something to want to protect your child rather than just blindly coded into an unconscious Yeah, no, mechanism. It's, it seems to us that the feelings of love and fear, probably primarily, but, but of course all of the other emotions and desires and intentions, it, it seems that our experience of them is the thing that gives them their power. Except we know the case of fear is a great example because we yeah. know that the startle response has already hit the amygdala before you're aware you've been startled. Yeah, no, you know, so, so I, I think we're probably wrong about this. And and again, the, the zombie thought experiment can get you there. But just imagining an AI that's been programmed to, above all else, protect this other robot, you can call it its child, whatever it is, you, it doesn't seem to us that it would require that it have an experience in order to follow that programming. So, so the argument about evolution is one that sends many people, including myself, down the path of, is it possible 
that consciousness is a fundamental feature of all matter, and it is there in some form. Of course, if, if we're talking very minimal forms, if we're talking the level of atoms or very minimal information processing, it's important to not confuse consciousness with complex thought. There, there's no, there's, no one is postulating that if it's a more fundamental feature, it is anything like a human mind and brain. But okay, so let me just understand the move you just made. So, okay. the the idea that consciousness may not be doing anything seems problematic if you think that consciousness had to have emerged in the process of evolution, because by default we expect those things to have been costly in some way, yeah, and to have been selected for, and therefore by definition they were leading to differential success in breeding and survival. So, if consciousness isn't doing any of that, that seems mysterious, unless you posit that it is a far more fundamental feature of physical reality yes, than that. Right. And the name for that view, the, ge the general family of views in philosophy is panpsychism. Right. Right. So I warned you to tread lightly <laughs> on panpsychism because it seems... It, well, first it, of all, it's a terrible name. I actually, I, I kind of opened the question to the world to come up with a better name. It just, it, it sounds something like something very unscientific or pseudoscientific. Mm. And just on the face of it, it sounds like a crazy idea, which it really, I feel like I'm, I'm a good proponent of it. And I actually shouldn't say I'm a, I'm a full proponent of it because in my book, I, I say, and I'm, I'm still in the same place that I'm really just open to it. I think it's, it's, a, it's a, a category of theories that are very interesting and worth exploring. I think it's it's just as likely that even though it is as mysterious as it is, it's possible that that it requires, that consciousness requires a brain and that consciousness does not emerge until we have brain or a nervous system present. But I, I, I think this other, this other way of looking at consciousness is very interesting. And I feel like I'm a good person to fight for it or to fight mm -hmm. for, for more people being open to it because I completely dismissed it when I first encountered it. And like most people, they feel that it just the idea sounds completely crazy. So I cite in my book this great title of an article by Philip Goff, which is Panpsychism is Crazy, but it's also most probably true. And that really gets at for me the point at which I started to take panpsychism more seriously. So well, so it was something that I completely dismissed when I when I first encountered it and thought it sounded totally crazy. We should define it, too. There are different levels mm -hmm. at which you could imagine consciousness is integrated right. with the stuff yes. of things. So, yeah. Well, there, there, may be, there may be three different levels at which people think consciousness could be appearing under this umbrella term panpsychism. And one is at the level of information processing, which, as far as I know, that's where David Chalmers feels that it makes the most sense for it to emerge. He, he, may, he may be more open to, to a deeper level than that now, mm. but he, he writes about that. He writes about the possibility that a thermostat could be conscious. It's very minimal information processing. And then some people postulate that it is a fundamental feature of matter itself. Whether it's processing information or not. Right. Yeah. So any matter down to the level of individual particles that consciousness is itself a property of matter and so right. it's it's integral to to matter and there is some 
level of experience, no matter how minimal and completely unlike. I mean, anyone who proposes these theories acknowledges that it would be unrecognizable to us, the, the type of experience. So you imagine, you imagine what it's like to be a bat. That is a very different experience from the one we have as human beings. You know, navigating the world with sonar, just what that feels like must feel very different. It must be a very different experience from navigating the world using vision. And then obviously, the, the more simple the system, if consciousness is present in everything, then we're talking about such a minimal level of experience. It's not something we could, we could ever even try to imagine. It's, there's, there's no memory. There's In one of the chapters of my book, I actually I try to give a sense of what consciousness could be like in its most minimal form. And I kind of talk the, the reader through this guided imagery. But I think if it's possible that, that consciousness is present in all matter, most experience that exists is nothing like the experience we have as human beings, and it's probably a very rare form of consciousness. And it's also not experience that you would expect to show up in the world in any way that it doesn't currently show up. So, right. for instance, if there is something that it's like to be an electron or an atom, one that's not saying that there's something that it's like to be a couch, Right. right from the inside. Yes, right. And you certainly wouldn't expect ordinary physical objects to behave differently than they do on right. the basis of that. Right. No, everything would appear the same to us. I mean, we'd, we'd probably think about it very differently if we knew it were the case that consciousness was a pervasive element in the universe. But no, it, we wouldn't expect anything to be different from the way it is. Right. So is that, when you're talking about complex behavior or any behavior, you're talking about a complex system that can do things based on the way it's integrated. Yes. Right? And so a complex integrated system. Yeah. Yeah. But there are other problems with this notion of consciousness going all the way down. And well, I mean what the the worst one from my point of view is that it just seems from the consciousness we are directly familiar with, our own, that there is complex information processing in our own brains that there's nothing that it's like to be, right? That it's, it, it certainly seems, you know, based on all you can experience about yourself directly, that, as we said, your choice to produce a certain word or... Or even just when we're in deep sleep, we... That appears to be a cessation of consciousness. Yes. Yeah. Or under I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I, I, I suspect that could just be a cessation of memory, but... Right, but e but either way, I, I mean, we we d we definitely have a strong intuition that, or and we also know that there there are certain things that are happening even in my body right now that are not rising yeah. to the level of what my experience is. But I I think I think it's I I could easily see how there's a capital M for my, and that there could be a lot of other consciousness, you know, within the boundaries of my physical body. That's not, it, it sounds, it's one of those things that sounds crazy at first, but it's not that hard to imagine. We can talk about the research on split brain patients, but so, so yeah, I think that intuition is similar to looking at a rock and saying, of course, there's no experience, there's no consciousness. Looking at the table, looking at inanimate objects, we have a very strong intuition that they're not having an experience. Just to explain the split brain reference, which you talk about in the book, and which I wrote about in Waking Up as mm -hmm. well. The fact that you can divide the cerebral hemispheres and uncontroversially 
produce two separate conscious experiences. Right. Really, they're two subjects at that point. That's interesting because it suggests, I mean, it's interesting for many reasons, but it suggests that even in, in an intact brain, there's almost certainly imperfect information sharing across the hemispheres. Right. Right. So you could imagine that there are islands of conscious experience or other points of view, mm -hmm. even in an intact brain. Mm -hmm. And if you are one of those points of view, you wouldn't necessarily know about the existence of the other points right. of view. Right. And that given the dynamic nature of information sharing, those points of view could be changing mm -hmm. the, their purview, you know, and, and maybe even coming in and out of existence yes. as information gets shared. Right. And that you, the subject, could always be sort of the predominant locus of experience. And mm -hmm. I guess you could expand and contract and be running alongside other points of view that are opening mm -hmm. and closing or, or, or coming I online. I also think they don't offline. even necessarily have to be points of view in the way that we have a point of view. So this is where we can get into a little bit of the illusion of the self. But but with split brain, we really yes. do think there's, there is just another yes. point of view yes. in no, the, but it the right hemisphere that the left hemisphere doesn't know anything about. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It doesn't seem that likely to me that something like that would be happening in a brain that weren't split, but I can easily imagine other processes that have consciousness that does not entail a self or even complex thought, but that are processes that that are not non-conscious processes that, yes, I, I think I, I agree with you. It makes sense that some of that content could cross over into the experience that we're having, some, or, and some of it could be completely closed off from it, just depending on the structure. But this, this would be true if individual cells, individual atoms, if, if there's some level of experience. And I, and I think once you're able to break through the illusion of self or understand that, that our sense of being a self in the way that we experience it is not an accurate picture of, of reality, these types of theories are easier to entertain or to, to imagine. So I, I warned you to tread lightly on panpsychism because it is a has been a somewhat disreputable theory just because it, it seems highly unparsimonious, right? It's attributing consciousness, you know, one of the more it is imagined complex cognitive properties of higher level animals. Yeah, no, it's it sounds completely electrons crazy. and uh, <laughs> perhaps even below. So it sounds kind of profligate in that sense, but there are very well-regarded people who have warmed up to this theory. Yeah, and I, yeah. actually, I wasn't aware that Christoph Koch was one of them. Yeah. But he, he's, I don't, does he call himself a panpsychist? No, 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 but he's, he's open to it. And he definitely thinks it's possible that certain very minimal levels of information processing give rise to consciousness hmm. in a way that most neuroscientists do not. It sounds crazy, and it may in fact be crazy, but I found myself just naturally going down this path in my own thinking after many, many years. And then I remember I, I kept coming to you saying, I think this, this might be possible. And we, we would you know, talk about the details and talk about what I was thinking about. And you would always say at the end of those conversations, don't, don't ever say this. <laughs> don't, don't, <laughs> don't say don't this in public. Outside don't of say this bedroom. to any neuroscientists you work with. Yeah. And I think it was good advice. I, I agreed. It can sound crazy. But what was interesting is I started writing, so the, the way this whole book came to be was I 
wanted to work through some of my own. I was surprised at my own ideas, surprised at where my thoughts were taking me and my own process. So writing really helps me get clear about my own thoughts and helps me think through different ideas. And so I, I started writing about this just for myself, really. And then I, I shared it with a few friends who I, I knew were interested in, in the topic. And then I, I realized that many more people were interested in hearing about these ideas and hearing about where philosophy and neuroscience currently are in terms of understanding consciousness. So it, it slowly became an, an article and then, and then a short book. And what was interesting was that once I was writing it as a book, as an accessible book for the general public, I was very nervous about writing about and discussing panpsychism. And so I sent it to many scientists who I assumed would really have strong arguments against what I was saying. Scare you straight. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to spare myself whatever embarrassment I might experience on the other side of publication. Mm. But I also really, I was, more than anything, I've just been interested in working through these ideas. So I just wanted to hear what scientists who I knew would think these ideas were crazy, what what they would say, what their arguments would be. And what Mm. was incredibly interesting and surprising to me was that many of these scientists were actually very happy that I was writing about the topic, Mm. were completely open to these ideas and felt that they couldn't speak about it publicly themselves. And so they were happy that, that someone someone like me, who I, I don't have to put my, my career, my reputation mm. on the line, really, to write about these things, because I'm not in academia, because I'm not a scientist. And I, I realized that many well-respected mainstream scientists have thought about these ideas before and are, are not close to them at all. And, and some of them are really in fact, think it's it's more likely than not that some version of panpsychism is is correct. One thing we should say at this Deepak Chopra-like <laughs> point is that if panpsychism is true, that doesn't necessarily suggest that the New Age philosophy around the idea that consciousness right. is fundamental to reality right. Right. is true. Well, and that, that's that, actually on the other side. So I had two two fears on each side of the spectrum. One was that these ideas sound crazy to scientists. And then on the other side is that the things that I was expressing in a scientific framework could get misused and interpreted as being evidence for some pseudoscientific and new age ideas. So after I got these reactions from scientists, one of the goals of the book suddenly became to make this topic less taboo. Because the hard problem is the hard problem. If we want to understand consciousness, I think it's possible that we're that our brains are just not wired in such a way that this is something we can understand. It may just always seem deeply mysterious to us, but I think if it's something we can understand better, it will require that we break some strong intuitions and that scientists are able to to be creative in their in their thinking about it. Yeah, this is a point that I've mentioned a bunch on the podcast. It really I think it first came up with Max Tegmark, hmm. who I mean it's, it's just a it drops straight out of evolutionary logic, but mm-hmm. whatever is true at certainly the fundamental level of reality, whether you're talking about the very small, the very fast, the very old 
or in our case, how consciousness is integrated with matter, the true description should not seem commonsensical right. to us. No. We have not evolved to track reality at that level at all. Right. And so if we do have a commonsensical one in hand, it should seem implausible for that reason alone. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now to a few less than commonsensical intuitions, which we, which now really are a matter of common sense for us, and this poses a communication problem. But the fact that free will is an illusion, mm -hmm. the fact that the self, as most people experience it, is also an illusion, I think it also is a fact that those are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Why do you think it's so counterintuitive for people to hear this described? The free will one is more straightforward. I mean, there's, there's more it's to say to about the illusion. It's easier to break through, easier to break through that. Well, it's just, just conceptually, it is, in fact, impossible to make sense of what right. people could mean by free will. Yeah. It just doesn't, it's not like you can describe the thing as it is there or should be there, and then, you have, then you're arguing that it's not actually there. Yeah, but you can't even describe how causes can propagate such that people could have the freedom they think they have. But I think the self is the same thing. I mean, especially once you get there with free will. So I've been, I've been co quoting Galen Strassen recently because he just said it so succinctly. But he, he says in, in, I think it was one of his articles that he wrote, what you do follows from what you are. And that, that is basically why free will is an illusion in a nutshell. And even if we can get to that point, we, we understand that everything we think and feel and experience is, is at some level a product of, of our brain processing. We still, I even, you know, in this moment, I can have, I, I, or in most moments, no. Not even, certainly not in the middle of that sentence. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but I mean, that's the point. Like, if you pay attention, you can see that you're not in control of any of it. Yes, no, but, but I think that then just crosses over to the self. So then very quickly, so you notice, okay, all, all of, everything that I'm experiencing is this brain processing, but we still have this intuition hmm. that the self is the thing that has the free will, right? So they're, they're coming together. So the moment you notice that you're still carrying around this illusion that, you, you know, there's part of you that wants to say, okay, I know my brain is doing all this processing, but, and, you know, the, the desire for ice cream is coming from this processing, but I, me, the, the mm. self that's separate from my brain, can somehow override the brain processing and in some sense could even stand outside of my body. Paul Bloom often says that we're common sense dualists, and mm -hmm, that, that's mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. default, right? subjectively for most people, that there's a sense that the mind is separate from the body and brain, I mean, which is natural. There, there's no evidence of the brain at all, right? You, just, you don't yeah. feel that you have a brain, right. and much less that it's doing anything important. So you feel like your mind can float free of the physics of things. Right. And that you have a body, and you presume you have a brain, and the sense of self is bound up, it's really identical with the sense that you are the author of your thoughts and actions. And well, so that's, that's, so that's, the, that's the feeling that of free, the free will. will. That's, yeah. that's where the illusion of free will lives, is in the, the self is the thing that's free. They really are the same object yes. or pseudo-object, which is the feeling of self is the feeling of agency. Right. And that is the feeling that suggests I could have done otherwise. Mm -hmm. Right. In this, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't, there, there was nothing at my back 
pushing mm -hmm. inexorably in one direction, I was not determined. This thought wasn't determined. This movement of my hand wasn't determined. I did it. That's mm -hmm. the, the I did it feeling, which is both the feeling of freedom yeah. and it's the feeling of self. Yeah. And it's, I would say, this is where consciousness plays a role also, or this is where consciousness comes in and, and how free will and the self are illusions that prevent us from seeing consciousness clearly. Because even if there's some sense in which the brain is making a choice, there's some processing that's taking place that's choosing right over left, that's choosing door A over door B, in some sense, there, there may not actually be at a more fundamental level, there may not be a sense of, of causality in this way. But when we talk about processing, so even if we can say that the brain is, is making a choice, the idea that the conscious, your conscious experience is the thing driving that decision is part of the illusion of free will and self. And that, I do make a distinction in the book between conscious will and free will, only in the sense that in some sense, we can talk about the brain making decisions based on outside information and processing. Yeah. That isn't necessarily reliant on consciousness. Yeah. Well, so well, let's say a little more about that. So we're conscious, and you're conscious of certain of the inputs into your mind, mm -hmm. right? Now, at what stage you become conscious is difficult to specify, but you have all of this information coming in. Some of it gets promoted to consciousness. So I can be, I can say, well, I saw you reach for the glass over mm -hmm. there. And if that is part of my initiating the next thing I do mm -hmm. or think or mm -hmm. say, it seems like consciousness is playing a role in the causality of things. But again, whatever role it's actually playing, it's, it has to be playing at the level of the brain to be effective right. and, as well. And it's certainly not the conscious self is initiating all of this processing right. in the first place. It's yeah. not, it's uh, so not the, behind the, the, what the you think, Yeah, the, the agent, the subject, who, many, who you might feel yourself to be, isn't controlling any part of this process, right? So, like, you know, you're not right. picking the right. data that, that are coming in. Right. You're not picking their efficacy, whether they affect you or not, and the degree to which they do. You're not choosing what you're conscious of either. You're not choosing the next thing you notice mm -hmm. or think mm -hmm. or intend. All of this stuff is simply emerging, and you are the witness of that as a matter of, of consciousness. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about the way in which the illusion of free will might be useful. I mean, for, first of all, as parents, we're not drumming it into our daughters that they don't have free will. Right. right? So there's, like, there's, <laughs> there's a reason why, and there's a reason why we don't, right? Presumably... Yeah. This is not a truth about the human mind that we feel it's important to emphasize for a 10-year-old, right. much less a 5-year-old. Right. So why not? You're a mom. Why not spend the next hour making <laughs> sure our daughters understand that they don't have free will? Only to the degree that it would be confused. I think if she truly understood it, I think it would be, I mean, it's not necessarily something that will help her. I don't think it would be something that could hurt her. The, the way I imagine it being harmful is in in the way that it could be misinterpreted. And, th and, and this, so, this, I think, is what worries many adults about it, too. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to misinterpret. But it could be argued that even if you interpret it correctly, there is a time and place to be motivated by the illusion, or at least not, not to have yeah. its illusoriness be this, what is salient, right? Right, yes. 
And this actually comes down to what we mean when we say or imagine that a person could have or should have done something other than they did, mm-hmm. right? So if you know our daughter is rude to somebody, right, doesn't say thank you when you know another grown up gives them something, and we say, you know, it's really nice to say thank you. You should, you know, you, you should say thank you when someone gives you a gift. We are imparting a lesson that's you know objectively important to learn to produce a civilized and and happy person, and it seems to impart the message or reveal the assumption that she could have or should have done otherwise. I right? guess. I mean, I, I see this, I think I see this slightly differently. I think the useful thing is that you can learn and adapt your behavior for the next time you're in a similar circumstance. Right. I think just psychologically, I think the, I, I could have done it differently or I should have done it differently is just 99% of the time a cause for psychological suffering. And well, I, I feel I the same way. I'm not sure how I, useful yeah. it is ever. But I mean, let's just linger here for it, a second because regret, yeah. there's something, there's a, a component of regret, I mean, the painfulness of regret is part of what ensures that next time you'll be more vigilant to do otherwise. I don't right? think so. It's part of the learning cycle. Maybe, but I think the the most painful regrets are the things you are never going to have a second chance at. And that's obviously when it's the most harmful to people. Right. And I think that's when regret really shows up. And that, that actually, I think that's a, that's a prerequisite for regret is that particular circumstance will not present itself again. You, you, you did something that. Yeah, you can't unharm that person. Right. Or un- so, disappoint so I don't that know person. that that's ever useful for anyone really. And I, well, no, no, but just think about it, like in the context of our marriage, right? So we're we're married. We have an ongoing relationship. I do something that causes you suffering. You pointed out if I don't feel any regret, if it's, if I just feel like, well, you know, I couldn't have done otherwise, right? That was just I, I didn't. I'm not the author of my thoughts and actions. I'll try next time to be different. Now that I know that you don't like this, but <laughs> the. It would be worse. It, it would it would be more effective if there was actually a sting of conscience there, don't you think? Yes, but I think conscience is different from regret. I think it's it's just more much more useful to think in terms of well, then it's regret in that moment. I will when you have a choice out. at the next fork in the road, and that's right. still part of the illusion of free will. But I think that's the, that's what's useful, was if it, anything is useful about the idea that we have free will. There are two levels of it. There, there's like what's fundamentally true and ha- how, you, how you talk about yourself and reality when you're acknowledging that we, we don't have free will. And then there's another level of the conversation, which is more of a what's healthy psychologically. How do you talk to children? What could be dangerous about discussing this? How could it potentially harm people? And I think those are slightly different conversations. Well, I'm also I'm also wondering whether you think it's possible to experience what's true throughout this whole process. Forget about kids for a moment. Just yeah. take uh, ourselves as adults. Is it possible to experience what's true with respect to free will and the self and have that be psychologically and behaviorally optimal? Take regret as one component. Like if if you were vividly aware in each moment that whatever you did, you couldn't have done otherwise, 
and then you do something stupid or harmful or something for which you get feedback from people you care about. But you're ha- you're ha- you're having both levels of the conversation at the same time. You 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 said let's have it at this level, but then you jump to the other level. No, it's, so, it's still the same level. I mean, it can it no, can be stupid you, and harmful. If you even are if it's you determined. are aware in every moment, so you're you're shaking yourself free of the illusion of free will and right. self. And yet you're you're functioning in the world. You're saying things. You're doing things. Right, but then regret won't come up. This is the question. So, but I listen. But I think I think we can talk about it at the at the second level only because I think re- regret is not okay. useful. Well, well, so maybe maybe you're, we're getting hung up on this word. But so yeah. if I, if I did something, it might be a different conversation if we talked about it. Well, just imagine doing something purely by accident, right? So it wasn't even intended. You know, yeah, I don't think feeling sorry and regret are the same. Well, well, then what's your view of regret? Being sorry is related to compassion. Regret is related to self-hatred. So you're, you're giving it kind of a topspin of shame. But I think that, it, that that's, that's why they're different. Regret does have... And this... it also regret also has the free will component, like deeply, unnecessarily yeah. Well, this is, this is the problem. That I don't think is useful. I think it's harmful. Well, okay, I, I, <laughs> I get it. But, <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out if, if there's anything we disagree about here. If you do something... If you are the agent of harm, mm-hmm. right? However inadvertent, you were the cog in the machine, and it really was not. It wasn't that you were being selfish or you were even mm-hmm. engaged in, in a voluntary action that mm-hmm. led to the harm. Mm-hmm. You could just have been yeah. in the wrong place at the wrong time, and yet yours was the final domino that fell that caused tremendous harm, right? Let's let's just think of a pure case where this. Well, I don't, so. Then I don't think regret is the word you would use to describe how you feel about it, because regret is about a choice. I mean, the regret comes into play in in ways that I are, well, are destined ha, ha, to is be. Is it possible to feel sorry without regret? Without the illusion of free will? Yes. Okay, so you're you're clearly differentiating the feeling of I'm so sorry I did that. Yeah. From regret. Yeah, okay, even with so, responsibility. Okay, so you use it. You're, you're, we're we're using these words slightly differently. I think that's the problem. So, what is the feeling of being sorry anchored to, if you're vividly aware in the moment that you couldn't have done otherwise? It's compassion for the other person. Right. Focus so on the other person. You're focused not on, focused on the on, on the you. harm done. Yeah. yeah. Also, what you could also be focused on in in the normal case, whether or not you have any illusion that you could have done otherwise. You could have been moved by something which, retrospectively, is something you want to change in the, in the so, future. Something that's undignified in light of the fact that it caused someone else harm. Right. right? Like if you're selfishly go, you know, rush into the fridge because you just can't wait to grab another beer, <laughs> and you, you know, you trample over your child. Right. Right. <laughs> you cannot use that example. Well, why? <laughs> Oh, well, first, trample over your child for, first, while rushing to the fridge to get well, a beer. First, let me say I've never done that, right? And, <laughs> and with you as my witness, no one would believe that was possible because it uh, <laughs> that hasn't happened. But no, I mean, so t- take a take a, a normal case, which well, you can take many respons- parents there, have experienced. There's just, there are many levels levels to this. You can take responsibility for whatever choice or action you made led to harming someone else for two reasons. But what does it mean to take responsibility? Yeah, so there, there are two reasons. One is, even if we're able to, to shake this feeling for a short amount of time, nobody else is doing this. So 
it's important for everyone else's psychological health for you to take responsibility and apologize for the thing you did that clearly sent the person's fate in a bad direction. But it is the, the, the real cash value of it is a resolution to be different next time in similar situations. That's its, its actual effect. Yes. You can become a better person yeah. owning the thing that you could not have done otherwise. Yeah. So, so when this comes up, I sometimes give the example of, of trees and, and plant behavior. We assume they're not conscious, and whether or not panpsychism is true, I still assume plants and trees are not conscious. They adapt their behavior based on their environment. Their roots grow in different directions. They're not doing any of this with their conscious will, but in some sense, they're making different decisions based on information they received from the way they did it the first time in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. There is a poisonous chemical for coming from another plant and they got too close to it and damage was done and they're now going to grow in a different direction. I think this is very boring. <laughs> <laughs> We've spent way I, too much time on I, this like weird little rabbit I'm, hole of a regret issue. I'm leaving that in. <laughs> I think that this is, is awesome. You're the first person on my podcast to just <laughs> disparage the podcast that fully. Is there anything else about Consciousness, free will, the self. Do we want to talk about meditation at all or meditation for kids? Because you've done a lot of work teaching kids mindfulness and you're, you're now, you have a, a course for kids on the Waking Up app. Many people are surprised to learn that kids as young as five or six can be taught anything useful in this area. So, yeah. What are your thoughts? I'm one of them. <laughs> they constantly surprise me. I just recently started teaching younger kids than I've ever taught before. I had, up until a couple of years ago, only taught, the, the youngest class I taught was second grade. I mostly taught second through fourth. A couple of years ago, I taught a kindergarten class and was not expecting them to get much out of it and, and was completely blown away by them. And this year, I taught a preschool, pre-K class. And I actually got into it because one of the moms at the school wants to learn how to teach meditation to children. And so we kind of set this up for, for a preschool class just so I could train her and, and she could observe what, what my class is like. But I, I made a very strong disclaimer at the beginning that these were the youngest kids I've ever taught and I had no idea what to expect. And I was, <laughs> it's sad to say, I, I wasn't expecting much. I didn't expect them to be able to, to really learn the practice of meditation. Um, and I thought we could get some concepts in and we could kind of lay the groundwork for for future work, but they blew me away as thoroughly as every other class I've taught has. And I just had this experience that I haven't told you about yet. There's a little boy in the class who... So these are five-year-olds? They're five, yeah. yeah. I think they're four and five, actually. So we were, we've now had about 10 classes. They were able to sit and pay attention to whatever I, I've been guiding them in. We started with sounds and sights and feelings, and they seemed to, they, they definitely made progress in being able to sit and just observe the things that were happening around them for longer periods of time. And then a little boy in my class, we were doing a mindful seeing meditation, and he said, it looks so fast. Something like that. I, that mm -hmm. might not be a direct quote, but some, and I, and I, 
we all stopped, all the, the two teachers of the class and then this other mom and I kind of looked at each other. And we felt like he was noticing something interesting. So I asked a few follow-up questions and, and said, what do you mean? And he said, it moves so fast. And we had just been talking about the difference between the past and the present and the future. Mm. And I said, are you talking about the moment, the present moment? And he said, yeah, you see something and then you see something else. And I'm paraphrasing, but he, he clearly was having a profound experience of just noticing the passage of time, you know, micro moment by micro moment. And that was astonishing to me that a child that young could, could basically get what it's about. Generally speaking, children don't get everything grown-ups get. I mean, they, right. they get, it's, there's a more coarser-grained level of self-awareness that mm-hmm. they're getting out of it. But it seems really important for kids to be getting it. And yeah. Just, just, the, just to be aware of what emotion is present in their minds. Yeah. No, it's, I now understand that it's extremely beneficial to them. It started for me just with an intuition that I thought it would be, it would have been so helpful to me as a child mostly just with difficult things that I was experiencing. I I Mm. thought knowing how to meditate could have helped me manage a lot of what I was dealing with, and I just wanted to bring that to children. Didn't you feel that you were doing it spontaneously in a way as a kid with migraines? I did, but I just talked about this with Dan Harris. Oh, the other Harris. (laughs) Do you want me to repeat the story? (laughs) If you can deign to repeat yourself to my audience. (laughs) Hold on, I wasn't finished. What I've what I wanted to say is that what I realized once I started working with children is that they are better positioned. Their minds are actually in a better state to learn to meditate than adults are almost across the board, I think. Hmm. I think they learn more easily. I think it's a natural state that they just have more readily available to them. And yeah, I mean they Somehow it's surprising to me every time, but this has just been a consistent thing that I've experienced over the last 15 years. They learn fairly quickly. They have very profound experiences. And they start to notice on their own how it's helping them psychologically. They make the connections on their own with how their meditation practice Mm. is helping them in conflict with their siblings, in stress around taking tests you know, just Mm. in the same way that that adults do. But in my experience, they notice those changes and they're able to develop a regular meditation practice much more quickly than adults generally do. What do do you think the earliest Mm. practical time to start is? Because because from what I can tell, five still sounds like it's a little too young. I I think it probably is. Yeah, so when... Like seven? I mean, I've always said, and I still feel that my favorite age to teach is nine and 10-year-olds. There's something about that age developmentally that seems perfect for not just learning, but retaining what they learn through adulthood and being able to understand and process the experiences they're having. I really, I think that is probably the ideal age. I, I'm sure other meditation teachers would have other ages, but that, that just mm. seems to me to be the perfect time. But I do think they can absolutely start. I mean, not now I, I'm convinced they can start as early as five. I would have said before six or seven, and I still think that's what I would give. 
I think there there are a lot of the kids in the preschool class who are not having the experience of of that one mm-hmm. little boy. That was. Yeah, he could be a, a prodigy. You were asking about my experience with migraines. No, oh yeah. So, please divulge your personal experience <laughs> with migraines as a child. I, I, it did actually happen at other points, and I now now that I've been working with kids for a while, I hear their stories as well, and I I realize. I mean, I never thought this was unique to me. This is why I wanted to teach children. I, I figured that many children had the experience I had, which is kind of finding meditation spontaneously and and naturally. And so the the first vivid memory I have of it was when I had a terrible migraine and I I started getting bad migraines when I was 8 years old. And there were many times where I didn't have medication that was working or I just didn't have medication available to me and I would spend hours in agony where any movement at all caused extraordinary pain. I mean, I was in pain even when I wasn't moving, but just small movements would would make it so much worse that I would just try to stay as still as I could. And there was one time, I wasn't at home. We were, I think we were visiting friends somewhere. And so I didn't, I had no medication with me. And it was an especially bad migraine. I was in terrible pain. And I just suddenly became curious about what I was experiencing. And I couldn't, under, I was, there was something that bothered me about the fact that just lying there in pain felt so horrible. It sounds kind of strange when I say it, but I think many people have arrived at this idea that getting curious about something, especially something that is painful, can be part of the antidote to whatever it is you're experiencing, whether it's physical or emotional pain. To use a, a kind of a Buddhist framing of it, the insight here is that there's the pain, there's the mm-hmm. strong, unpleasant physical sensation. sensation, and then there are other steps in the chain that produce the psychological suffering around that physical sensation. So I don't even think I, I don't think I recognize that though. I think in that moment, I just, I couldn't figure out, you know, like this is just But, but an becoming experience. curious, be, becoming yeah. curious of, of, of the, about the experience itself can break that chain of causation from unpleasant stimulus to psychological suffering. Because yeah. for instance, yeah. one, one link in that chain is the resistance yes. and aversion well, that's what to, I the, noticed. to the pain. That and if you become curious, you're, yeah. you're undercutting that. That was the, that was the first real insight I had. So it it came from a curiosity almost about the physical sensation, like what is this sensation? And there's something about a migraine too, where I think all pain is probably this way, but a migraine is particularly hard to pinpoint where exactly yeah. the pain is. It it, it moves and it's, and it's also closer to where you are as the yeah, subject. right. Right, like it's not a mile away in your foot. Right. But there was part of me that just felt like I should be able, this, this shouldn't be so horrible. <laughs> like why? Why is there any feeling in consciousness that feels this bad to be experiencing? And so I, the, all I really did in that moment was just started looking more closely at the pain and started to find where it was and started to see what kind of character it had. And I noticed that just that activity, just kind of playing that game, gave me a tiny bit of relief. Mm. So I, I realized that there was a component of the pain where it was so scary and and uncomfortable for me that it's hard to describe what this is but i was really it's you 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 said it it's 
I was resisting it. Mm. There was kind of like a st- psychological stance of, I want this to go, like pushing it away. Well, it's also, also fear, too. It's natural to be afraid that it's going to continue. Yeah, and... although I don't remember that. That probably was there, but I don't actually remember that. I just remember changing my relationship to the pain and being willing to get closer to it and look at it provided just a tiny amount of relief that was different from this feeling of go away, go away, go away. Mm. And that was a conscious insight I had that that I then started applying to other things in my life that I found helpful when I was in uncomfortable moments to just look more closely, like, what am I actually experiencing right now? Mm. And more often than not, that made the experience much more tolerable. And what do you think about the ability of mindfulness to produce the same effect with respect to psychological pain? Oh, yeah. No, that that's actually what I mean. So I was, I was then, I took that experience of looking more closely at the pain in a migraine to psychological right. discomfort. Yeah. So growing up in your perfect family <laughs> as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, this wasn't as bad as you thought it would be, was it? We'll see. Well, the truth I... is you don't listen to the podcast very much. You You have been absolutely instrumental to everything I've written from the first book. I mean, you've, you've edited all my writing, but since I've wandered away from the away from the page and onto the podcast, you have been much less involved. I mean, I think you've only edited one podcast that I've released. Yeah. Right. So you've been, so this is. I may have only heard five. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a little much to even say that you're a fan of the podcast. You, <laughs> I'm you, not a fan. You, no. Anyway, I'm very happy that uh, you agreed to do this, and we will see how you like the aftermath. And if anyone can get, ever gets to hear it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, this, this, if you're listening, dear audience, this has escaped the censor who was the subject of this podcast. Again, thanks for doing it, and uh, I'm really happy you wrote the book. The, the other thing that's ironic here is that though what you wrote about is totally central to my interests. You really just did this on your own. I mean, I was so focused on my podcast and the app when you decided to write this book that I was not really available when you were... uninvolved. <laughs> to a fault, I but was... I, but it's, it's, that's also the reason why I haven't listened to your podcast. I mean, it's not, it's not actually because I'm not interested. You know that. We just have parallel lives. Yeah, well, we had children and then I got extremely busy with my career and you started doing something that didn't need my editing eye anymore. and It's not that it didn't need it. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> it certainly could have used it. You didn't need it. Well, check Twitter if you <laughs> believe that. Anyway, I'm very proud of you. I think it's awesome you released this book. And uh, I hope you have fun on the other side of publication. <laughs> Thanks, baby. Okay, how do, I, how do I get you off my podcast? <laughs> See you in the kitchen. 